This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we discuss gendered racism during pandemic times in academia and beyond, racial formation in South Africa, and more with Whitney Pirtle, Assistant Professor of Sociology and MacArthur Foundation Chair in International Justice and Human Rights at the University of California, Merced, where Dr. Pirtle directs the Sociology of Health and Equity, or SHE Lab. Dr. Pirtle is also a member of the Sight Black Women Collective and the author of Racial States and Remaking Race, Exploring Colored Racial Re- and Deformation in State Laws and Forms in Post-Apartheid South Africa, published in Sociology of Race and Ethnicity. Dr. Pirtle is co-editor with Zakia Luna of Black Feminist Sociology, Perspectives and Practice, which is now available for pre-order and shipped in October 2021 with Rutledge Press. We were, our conversation was recorded on July 12th, 2021. Thanks for joining us on the Annex, Whitney. Thank you so much for having me, and it's good to talk with you again. Yeah, it's good to, it's good to see you. A couple of uh, Vanderbilt graduates uh, here. Yes. <laughs> reconnecting, which is nice. Uh, well, Whitney, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast and hopefully help uh, share your work and introduce even more sociologists and others to the good good sociology that you're doing. The first thing I'd, I'd like to just talk to you about and learn more about is the way that your work tracks how structural, gen- how structural gendered racism operates across contexts on college campuses and academia more broadly, and how this phenomenon affects health during the current and continuing COVID-19 pandemic. So first of all, for those of us who aren't familiar, for those who aren't familiar with the term, how do you define structural gendered racism and and, how do you deploy that concept in your work? So when I'm thinking about structural gendered racism, I'm really pulling heavily from intersectionality theory in particular, Kimberly Crenshaw, who has theorized about intersectionality broadly. And one of the terms she even talks about is structural intersectionality. So this is definitely rooted in Crenshaw's work and other Black feminist thinkers. Um, But I, I see the tendency to focus on gendered racism as these more one off interpersonal slights, um, experiences of discrimination, microaggressions. And I think that there is sort of a renewed or maybe a consistent um, pressure for us to think about the structural aspects as well. And so we've seen that a lot, I think, in terms of structural racism, especially in the health equity literature, where people are finally understanding how structural racism harms, shorten lives, and kills off people of color. But I think applying an intersectionality framework to health disparities that really focuses on structural gendered racism is a needed next step. And so when I'm thinking about structural gendered racism, uh, Tichelle and I defined it as the totality of interconnectedness between structural racism and structural sexism in shaping race and gender inequities. And we argue that there are root cause of health problems and some that we're, we can see very clearly now during the pandemic. What this brings to mind for me is is the is the fact that so many essential workers 
our students or people who have been, are called essential workers, mm-hmm. right, are likely to be women of color, right, and other people of color in the United States. So, you know, early in the pandemic, when when many people with with means were rushing out to buy, uh, you know, flour and yeast and other kinds of things to take up baking as a hobby while they were at at home, the folks who stocked those shelves and the folks who were manning the convenience stores and the gas stations and things like that uh, were disproportionately uh, people of color and women of color um, in particular. Can you say maybe a little bit more about how your work tackles structural gendered racism uh, on college campuses and and, uh, in academia on the faculty and maybe staff sides as well? Sure. And I just want to Go back to your point about how we saw structural gender racism impact pandemic health inequities. Um, we, in our article, we talked about three different areas, and one was occupational status for sure. And so, when we're thinking about who those frontline essential workers are, um, research has found I me mean, that um, primarily Black, Brown, Latinx communities are in those sort of more insecure frontline work, um, delivering food, picking food, packaging food, those sorts of things. Um, And women of color are too, but they also occupy a particular sort of frontline devalued status within healthcare. And we Mm -hmm. see that area as really impacting the sort of heightened um, illness and mortality that they experienced during the pandemic, because it's those like um, folks who are doing in-home care work, who don't have union protections or CNAs who are um, charged to go in, interact with tons of patients, but maybe not even have the PPE that are required. Um, one sort of shocking and really sad statistic is that um, Filipina nurses made up, I think, around 40% of the mortality rate uh, so people who died from COVID-19 within that sector, but they wow. only make up 3% of nurses. And so you talk about a heightened disparity, like the ways that they are devalued in occupational settings is really harmful. Um, and it is, it, it is structural. It is not only like the, maybe they're experiencing those slights in the workforce, but it's structural in that um, the CARES Act didn't uh, provide relief funding for in-home nurses. Um, and so the, it's written into our policies and in terms of, you know, who occupies what occupation and therefore what occupations we decide to protect or those we call as heroes, that there is a difference and discrepancy there. And it has an impact, a huge impact on people's livelihoods. It, it's reminiscent of other ways that the law has excluded Primarily, you know, people of color, men and women of color, from protections uh, in 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 their jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So, about who is eligible for overtime? When we're talking about the tipped wage in restaurants for service workers, yes. uh, when we're talking about the exclusion of domestic employees for, I think it's overtime and other kinds of job protections, right? Uh, farm farm workers uh, uh, protections for farm workers as well in terms of of their pay and security. Even things like restroom breaks and adequate water and things like that. So, I mean, what what you're I think tying into is is some of the ongoing effects of really a racialized. We have a racialized society, mm-hmm. right? That protects some and you know exploits and devalues and really um, and really exposes uh, 
uh, others to um, to really dangerous, uh, un, unhealth, unhealthful, and of course, you know, poverty, poverty line wages, right? Exactly, exactly. And then what intersectionality tells us is that the, you know, racialized society interacts with these other intersecting systems like um, uh, structural sexism or patriarchy and also capitalism. And so you can see the devaluing across occupational status, across and within. Um, and in our article, we also talk about like the devaluation that happens within the home and the power dynamics there is another way that there was an increase in interpersonal um, partner violence um, that also those social safety nets that are put into place sort of were halted during the pandemics. And so you didn't have shelters um, operating and uh, women of color were at an increased risk um, also of losing their homes. So you have like, and they are more likely to um, be let go from jobs. And so you just talk about these like layers upon layers upon layers. And when you peel them back to look through these race, gender, and also class um, contrasts, you see that there's a particular group who's sort of been left behind. I mean, that I'm really glad you mentioned Crenshaw and the and the structural intersectionality uh, piece of her of her really classic article. I think that's the Chicago Law Review uh, mm-hmm. article. Her example, actually, I think, is Black women and their exclusion from protection of from domestic violence or from intimate yes. partner violence like laws right yes um, and so my partner works at a at a shelter for folks who have suffered intimate partner violence and also sexual assault and they did see a decline in the number of intakes during the 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 most extensive um part of the of the pandemic which we are in no ways out of here in mm-hmm. mid-july uh 2021 And um, in Crenshaw's article, she does talk explicitly about Black women, and we did that in our article too, but in that section about um, protections for women who suffered from domestic or inter um, uh, partner violence, she also brought in the axes of legal status. And so uh, immigrant women were in a particular uh, marginalized position in that if they sought help or maybe to divorce from their husbands, they didn't have secure legal status. And so they could face deportation. And so, you know, and that's, it was gendered in particular ways that these wives were um, left in this vulnerable position. And so that's even another layer that I think um, did come up during the pandemic when people, you know, couldn't get um, financial relief because maybe they didn't have a social security number or they didn't know where to turn to for help because we also had sort of, you know, racial and xenophobic violence at the same time that, you know, layered on to the pandemic. And so I think legal status is another big one. We didn't talk about too much in our article, but I think it's really important. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great things about, I think the increasing use of intersectionality as a as a paradigm or way of understanding these things is that as you say you you peel back the layers and find the specificity of mm-hmm. these uh, laws policies practices that really differentially impact you know very these groups right and you can see much more clearly the harm that's obscured when you uh, when you don't do that work right exactly maybe we can turn a little bit to your your work uh, on 
structural gendered racism on college campuses and in academia more broadly. Um, you've done some some work recently uh, on this, so maybe tell us about that um, that work and and what you what you were trying to get across there. Sure. I recently published an essay in feminist anthropology called We Too Academia. And in that piece, the goal was to join in the chorus of other women of color academics in particular who have said that this place um, should serve us. It should be a place for us, but it hasn't always been. And so I used Langston Hughes' poem, I to America, um, as sort of, uh, you know, embedded throughout my piece where he did a critical reflection on, you know, Black Americans' place um, in American society and how they were pushed into the kitchen. But eventually we laugh because people see how, like, brilliant and bold and beautiful we are. Um, that like our what we produce and provide um, is so integral to our society. And I think the same could be said of women of color academics in academia, that, um, you know, the research that we produce, the teaching that we do, the mentoring that we do, sometimes the, the mothering or other mothering that we do on campus is um, so integral to help the campus be sustained and help students feel supported and included within the campus community. Um, but that work that we do, again, is often undervalued or not seen. And it makes us feel sometimes that we don't have a place or we don't have a seat at the table. And um, I reflected on a moment where I felt like I physically did not have a seat at the table, like someone didn't move their chair over. And so I was pushed back from the table. And it was just a one-off moment, but it was a meeting where we were talking, you know, doing strategic planning and the chancellor was in the room. And so it was significant because it felt like this is a decision making table and I didn't have a place. And it was just one of those moments where it's like, I felt like this off and on the whole time I've been in educational spaces. And I was uh, mad, sad and tired about it, all of those things. Um, And so at that point, I think I was my first or second year and it didn't say or do anything, but I, you know, have built up my confidence and sort of fought back against imposter syndrome um, where I felt like I was an imposter and, you know, do that flip that we keep telling people to do <laughs> that you're not an imposter. The space wasn't built for you. And so you're doing what you need to do. And like the space needs to be changed. And so um, I've become better and bolder about speaking out when I feel excluded or when I see other people feel excluded. And so it was just a reflection on those experiences. And um, I was happy to get it placed. It was in the site Black Women's Special Issue of Feminist Anthropology. And it's been in those communities um, like site Black Women or, you know, and having feminist mentors and working on the edited volume, Black Feminist Sociology that I think helps me become more emboldened because I'm finding these spaces in academia that are beautiful, that make me feel included and make my merits feel warranted. And I'm like, this is the academia that I love. I actually love, you know, being in these spaces. And so it doesn't have to be harmful. It doesn't have to feel like I'm not included. We just need 
all of academia to be more like this, to like see people in their difference um, and celebrate it and understand that like the more seats we have around the table, the better place it's going to be. I will say, I remember reading this, uh, this essay, uh, your essay in, in feminist anthropology and that moment where you were trying to like literally have enough space to sort of like, you know, be visible at at this table where some important like conversations and maybe at least input if not final decisions were being were being made or being offered right was really poignant right and you're sort of in this space where you're like this is what everyone's talking about <laughs> you know like i literally cannot find like no one is going to move right yeah. and and as a you know, as a relatively new faculty member, as an untenured faculty member, someone who the incentives run, in my view anyway, they run entirely in the go along to get along. You know, do not make mm-hmm. us, do not make this uh, make this a big deal because you can be labeled as a problem, mm-hmm. and that, and that hits different for different kinds of people. So I mean, I think you know, um, those of us with more racial and gender. Uh, advantages or privileges, right? Uh, you, that might, you know, demanding a seat at that table or really asking someone to move in a sort of a more pointed way doesn't hit the same as if it were uh, a faculty member of color, right? Yeah. Who, you know, the, the where at, stereotypes are sort of activated about, um, you know, uh, an, an aggressive or or angry black faculty member, black man or black woman, right? Um, so I thought it was really a, a poignant um, moment to recount that that did hit on a lot of the themes that we um, that I think you're working on in in the in the site Black Women um, Collective and then the the edited volume as you say. So maybe let's talk more about that. Um, you are a member of the site Black Women Collective. Um, I imagine that there is a lot of conversation about black women's public writing, you know, their expertise and their scholarship and how that scholarship and that work is uh, far too often undervalued. Um, Can you maybe say, you know, more about how you and the other members of the collective are thinking about that, that problem and trying to address it in, in the work of the collective? Yes. So Sight Black Women is a collective that was, started by Kristen A. Smith, who is an anthropologist at UT um, Austin, and sort of got its grounding within anthropology because that's the discipline she's in, but has expanded. Um, There's the website, a blog, podcast, and sort of Twitter community for those who want to know more about it. Um, But the purpose of Sight Black Women, it does, in my opinion, go beyond citing Black women. And if you look at the tenets in our statement and the piece on practice, it's about that thing. It's about making academic spaces um, and other, uh, we, we've engaged in conversations like um, there have been m- musicians or artists who, you know, have it, their work um, plagiarized or maybe misaccredited or there might be, you know, young, even in the TikTok community, right? Like there's young black women who do dances and then uh, a young white woman might do the dance and then they get famous using this other girl's dance. And we've seen that, we've seen that happen over and over. And there was even a recent TikTok 
um, black content strike to call, you know, to to confront that practice of erasure. And so, yes, we are entering this space through academia because we are academics, but it is um, a broader issue about like understanding that black women are producers and that our, what we produce need to be credited. Um, and so when we're writing something like cite us, but cite us because you're reading and engaging and understanding that we have something important to say, um, not just because we told you you need more black women authors. I've seen that. I've seen my name be cited in spaces where I feel like it maybe shouldn't have, or maybe they didn't actually read the work because it's cited in these weird sort of ways. And I know that happens across the board. I know like citation practices um, are, are uh there's always these stories and problems and, you know, the, there can be thin lines. Um, but I think it, it speaks to the larger issues of erasure and silence and devaluing. And, you know, so it could be an intervention can be in the classrooms. Um, maybe you decide you need more Black authors and so you put them in one week. Um, and that's, you know, that sort of, it seems it's like this one-off, whether versus integrating them into the core of the syllabus. Um, or you construct a panel and then all of a sudden you realize it's all white and you find the one black person to come be the voice. You know, it's like, we we want more than that. We want to be engaged on our knowledge production in a critical, constructive way. Um, and so Sight Black Women is just calling into practice doing that more, citing, engaging, reading, um, paying, <laughs> protecting um, Black women thinkers in, in what they have given to the Academy and beyond. And part of what I hear you saying here, and then in some previous comments, is also ex expanding the range of things that are credited as actually like um, and, and that are visible actually as important academic work and as part of the responsibility of, of faculty. And so, I mean, I don't know what it's like at Merced. Uh, what it's like here is that our student population is um, becoming increasingly um, is, ex, uh, increasingly uh, Hispanic and, and Latinx folks. Uh, our Black student population is holding pretty steady and our international population is increasing as well compared to our dominant majority white population. And so our leadership here likes to say, and I don't recommend this language, but they like to say that we are 40% diverse, um, <laughs> which I've tried to get them to stop saying. But anyway, um, that's what they that's what they say. And my what I notice here is that uh, many of our uh, students who um, who are um, our Latinx or, and our, our Black or our, our Asian and, and African international students, they gravitate towards a small set of faculty members who look mm -hmm. like them. It makes a lot of sense, right? But that also, of course, doesn't share the, the responsibility of kind of mentoring those students, uh, encouraging those students, serving on those students, uh, committees, uh, you know, um, serving as sponsors of student organizations and so forth mm -hmm. to the faculty, which looks a lot like me, lots of white folks um, on the faculty here. 
And so I think there's a real inequity there when only like a, a small subset of faculty are called on again and again and again to not only do the student mentoring work and the student organization work, but also the university's diversity and inclusion, equity work, whatever it's called on a particular campus. And so here we see this usual suspects sort of over and over and over again in those uh, in those uh, committees in the called to serve. And I think it's a uh, uh, what I'm saying is majority white faculty need to also, uh, you know, take take ownership of, of some of those uh, some of those processes, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, support those those students, um, not out of a sense of, you know, uh, white saviorism or something like that, but out of a sense of like shared responsibility for the diversity of tasks that are are uh, called that we're called to, to do as, you know, as as faculty here um, at at universities. Yeah, I agree. It is like that here at UC Merced. So we are a Hispanic serving institution. um, And I think right now we have around 60% of our student population being Latinx. Um, And so it it is that. And in addition, I think our second highest population is um, Asian Pacific Islander. And we have, of course, white students and black students and international students as well. And so we are a diverse campus. We are diverse. um, And we serve a particular population of students that a lot of the other UCs haven't historically. Um, And so it's been an interesting, I mean, wonderful place to work. Uh, I really do enjoy the students, but I do believe that my job is different than some of my colleagues' jobs. Um, and it's hard, It's not something that's in our scope of duty, but um, I was, when I was hired, there were maybe um, four other Black ca- uh, faculty on the campus. I was the fifth, the first woman hired in the School of Social Science and Humanities and Arts. And um, students were like, oh, we heard, we heard you're here. And now we're at your door and we want your help in these ways. And these students are inspirational. I learn from them all the time. And I agree. I do say yes. Um, And so I know people say say no to service, but the service um, working with students is extremely meaningful to me. It makes me like my job a lot. And so that is something I say yes to. But the amount of meetings I've had with students or um, like with students, with students and administration, with administration, fighting for the students. I've been on overnight retreats with students. Like, I don't think that my colleagues have the same job on the day-to-day. And in some ways they can't serve that role. Um, They can't serve the role of being the first black professor that the student has always had. You know, they literally can't. And so sometimes it is recognizing that we might have different experiences and different jobs and supporting me and the work that I'm doing. Sometimes it is stepping up to say, oh, I'll lead this organization because I know you've done a lot. But sometimes it might be, okay, I'm going to serve on this curriculum committee um, and relieve you of that because I know you're doing this service work because our roles are different. So I think that recognition of it is really important. And then figuring out the best way to intervene um, like you said, so they might not step in in particular spaces because they might not be able to, um, but they can take on other labor so that it is more equitably distributed within, you know, our day-to-day experiences on campus. 
Yeah, it strikes me that this conversation is also bound up in in a particular view of merit, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of deservingness, not only for faculty positions, but also for you know tenure requirements and other other kinds of uh, of publicly recognized goods on campus. Like uh, you know whether you whether there's a you know, actual public recognition for, you know, a faculty member who does extraordinary work with with students outside the classroom, maybe not as an advisor, like to a student organization, but as someone who is recognized as, you know, the the academic who students can can come to to help them navigate the institution, you know, in terms of um, getting the ear of administrators or or raising, you know, raising concerns and and um, and making the the place better, you know, safer, more welcoming, more inviting for mm-hmm. uh, for students of of color. I will say that my department does have these questions, and so I do feel supported in that we have had these hard conversations, and we recognize this, and we're trying to figure out like what to do. Um, I don't know that any department has or university has figured it out, but, you know, the more you're talking about this, recognizing it, they just did this interesting sort of experimental exercise trying to literally capture service that we do. Like, we just fill it it on a spreadsheet. Um, So, I mean, I I don't think we can quantitatively capture it as a thing. I think that there's, like, this emotional um, aspect of it, like... um, this labor part that really is just hard to capture and like how many hours I spent on this thing, because some of it's like thinking at night when I'm, you know, talking to students, it's just really hard to think in quantitative terms, even though I do quantitative work um, in this regard, it's just hard to miss that. But I mean, I will say that we are trying and departments and universities need to continue to try to figure this out because, um, Otherwise, the burnout that we've we've seen, we've seen it so much in this last few years, it's going to keep increasing. And so there has to be some ways where we can intervene with like in our policies and structures, because otherwise you have folks like me who are just going to say yes until I can't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, part of me wants to say this is like a form of care work, right? And part mm-hmm. of care work is not just like the the physical like the physical presence or the doing of the thing but it's also sort of like this baseline concern and mental effort that goes into anticipating what may what the needs might be right responding to the needs when they're when they're voiced but also like helping folks who are um who are feeling like they are shut out or disadvantaged or not recognized, like helping them develop sort of the language and tools to think through those things as well. So it's sort of like a pre-work, you sort of assume that students come to you with a problem. Well, that may not always be the case. They come to you with like a vague, sort of a, an, a, a, an underlying sense of like unease, like this place is not mm-hmm. my need. It's not, of course it wasn't designed for me, right? There's one thing, right? But what does yeah. that really mean on a practical level in terms of how I make my way through in an environment that was, you know, that never anticipated me being in this lecture hall, never anticipated me like, you know, wanting to be an honor in the honors college or the honors mm-hmm. program. You know, I'm working with a, a, a student right now who's, uh, who's interested in the uh, of high achieving black males on a predominantly white 
religiously affiliated campus, right? And this this is the kind of student who routinely is like almost invisible, right? Because if you are black and male on this campus, mm-hmm. most people that you are an athlete of some kind. And so um, that those categories and like honor student don't often aren't congruent, right? For lots of for lots of students and maybe maybe for lots of faculty, actually. Um, and so he's trying to understand like those those dynamics, which I think is a really uh, interesting and important project. Uh, but it goes to this like trying to understand like why do I feel like I'm not <laughs> I'm not really welcomed here. I'm not really invited to fully participate in the life of this institution. Yeah, yeah. I have um, a paper that is conditionally accepted, so I hope that <laughs> I hope it can get accepted and out there soon. Um, and the title of it is "I Didn't Know What Anti-Blackness Was Until I Got Here," and that's a quote from a focus group. So a black student said that, and this is a a black student at um, um, UC Central. That's <laughs> what we wrote in the paper, and. Um, they're, they were saying how it was interesting. They they heard about this place as being, you know, racially diverse and supporting students of color. And yes, we know it's a Hispanic-serving institution, but diversity is sort of a keystone part of its mission. And when I got here, I learned what anti-Blackness was because it wasn't just racism that I was experiencing. It's this particular specialized form. For me as a Black student, that made me feel excluded on this really diverse campus. And that stood out to me that they could put it into those words so clearly because of their experiences there. But I think that it probably echoes Black faculty and staff experiences too. It's just um, to agree with what you're saying. It's like the need to peel back the layers, to understand the specificity, to figure out how these contexts um, still can harm particular groups of people, even when their mission is to serve and support them that sounds that's i think i remember you talking about this on twitter which i was like really excited about because i mean here like you're saying here's a university that uh on paper is like the multi-racial like multicultural, multi-ethnic kind of university that many people like have in their minds as like a laboratory for mm-hmm. what our whole country is going to look like in you know, the relatively near future. And like, I, sometimes I like to think about college campuses as sort of like laboratories for multiracial, multi-ethnic coalitional democratic politics. Right. And so how does, how do we practice that in these like microcosms in ways that, you know, inculcate or sort of practice the civic virtues that we would want to see outside of Mm -hmm. particular context. So as you're saying, like, even in this context where you think like everything is kind of like the, all the ingredients are there for like this recipe that is really great. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to, wants to try this or many people want to try it. Um, but it's not, it's not for everybody. Right. Yeah. And how do we, how do we continue to sort of, um, how do we practically and sort of pragmatically make our spaces and places like more responsive to um, the actual concerns, interests and, you know, um, desires of our, of everyone in the, in the community. Mm-hmm. This makes me really want to turn to your uh, new edited volume on black feminist 
sociology. And I want to want to ask you, like, what does sociology look like when it is deeply informed by a black feminist like ethic, you know, epistemology, uh, methodology? You know, what does sociology look like that takes black feminist scholarship, expertise and narratives really seriously? I just love how you phrase that question. Um, and honestly, I think that's the question we want people to ask when they're reading this book. Um, our argument in the introduction and throughout the book is that Black feminist sociology is the past, present, and future of sociology. Um, so again, to call to name those folks who were unnamed, um, even we have a chapter um, on Ida B. Wells that uh, Dr. Allen contributed, but also thinking through the future um, and just like what the merits are of these Black feminist thinkers. Black feminist thought really is, came, like sociology is so integral to that. It's sort of mind blowing that there isn't a Black feminist sociology edited volume at this point. Um, But for us, Black feminist sociology would look like, and we talked about this in our intro, part of it is uh, that praxis, well, one, one key thing that I would say is that praxis is not differentiated or separated from like intellectual uh, production. And so it's, you know, Black feminist sociology perspectives that sort of writing in the praxis. And so for us, it was like, being intentional in the praxis of Black feminism throughout the project. And so for us, that looks like building community, that this book is a book, but we also have a website and the website's going to have videos and playlists and blogs and that um, with our authors, we tried the best we could, even though we're dispersed all over the world to like try to sort of create some community. Um, And within that community, it's a mentoring, but it's not in a hierarchical, you know, format that there's a cross mentoring and the peers and creating the connections. Um, and that it's also being transparent with one another. It's also holding one another accountable, um, understanding that consensus is not actually something we should strive for. Um, <laughs> but that if there are um, any sort of contentions that we talk about them and understand what that means and can name and identify them. We said in our intro that Black feminist sociology also includes love and joy and fun. And we think the work should um, come from that standpoint. Like it's, we should think about love in like that Cornell West way of like what it looks like in public. And so love can include critique, um, but in a way that is constructive. And love includes um, supporting one another and celebrating wins across the board. And that when we write about people, we're thinking about their humanity, like we have a, a love or care for populations. You know, so that is the t- type of sociology that I get most excited about. And I see that throughout the book. Like some of these chapters like brought me to tears with the writing. That's amazing, you know? <laughs> um, and in the ways they're thinking about methodologies and letting participants speak for themselves as they should. Um, and we're thinking, you know, we have chapters on disability and how intersectionality asks us to think about that more and we haven't done so 
we have chapters on um, black masculinity studies and how there might be ways to connect that with black feminist thought in ways that are more like constructive and supportive of one another. Like even when you're studying um, masculinity and men using a black feminist practice is really important. We have chapters on um, uh, black trans studies and what that could do for the field. Um, and so for us, black feminist sociology is, is sociology, but it, it does stem from critical thought. It stems from intersectionality. Um, it stems from this black feminist practice of, of um, and like critical race practice too, of like using stories and understanding that the words on the pages should go beyond the pages. Yeah. I was, I'm glad you mentioned narrative because I've been, you know, we're, we're speaking now in the midst of a heightened controversy over critical race theory. We could say a lot about that, not, mm -hmm. not going to right now, except that one of CRT's tenants is valuing narrative and valuing the, the personal stories of folks who are, um, who are most harmed by um, legal, pol legal practice, you know, uh, public policy, and so on. I mean, the other thing I, I, I'm really that's exciting to me about this, and the way I think about sociology, is, you know, that it, it's actually helpful in um, in developing like a practice of freedom and liberation. Mm -hmm. so what we're doing here is we're 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 trying to understand how social structures, interactions, you know, laws, other systems, like how those things work, so that we can actually be free. Right. Yes. Um, and, you know, some of us are closer to that, you know, in virtue of our positions in social structure and white supremacy um, and others, you know, are not. So, you know, for those of us who are like more advantaged on those, you know, it helps us think about our responsibility. Right. Um, so there's a, there's a moral component to this. I mean, one of my questions for you is, is about um, the specific, sort of moral and, and ethical commitments that that drive your work, which I think has been, you know, um, a theme in what we've talked about, you know, so far, so far here. Um, so I'm excited, about, well, all that to say, I'm excited about the Black Feminist Sociology uh, volume. And um, do are you thinking that the, the volume is primarily useful for you know, faculty who are interested in doing this work, is it more aimed at sort of graduate students and early career folks? Or, or do you think it also has a role in maybe undergraduate, you know, classrooms too? Or maybe it's all of the above. Yeah, actually, I hope it is all of the above. And like for our, our moms and our sisters and anyone who wants to get a hold of this, really. Um, you know, it's not a handbook. We... The, the press has talked about writing a handbook that's, you know, even more sort of um, in the in the roots nitty gritty of what Black feminist sociology could be. And I think that would be an awesome exercise. But this is not that. This is a, like a conversation that I think, um, I won't say we're starting, but we're, we're putting it out there in ways that people can, you know, grasp onto it in one place. Um, there's interviews in the book, uh, Patricia Hill Collins, does it interview and Jennifer Nash. Um, there was a chapter that's like a set of letters to folks on Spellman sociology and thinking about that place is like such a critical oh. 
um, space for Black feminist thought. There were a group of graduate students who um, wrote an article together. They, um, let's see, five of them, I believe, were in the same program and wrote how they sort of supported one another to get through that program. And so I see this as a conversational piece um, where we want people you know, to engage it, to read it, to think, to ask these questions, and then to do something with it. And so I think it would be great in an undergrad classroom, um, but also all the way up to a graduate classroom, or a pro-sem, um, or a book club, <laughs> you know, I think it could go anywhere, uh, really. But Dan, if I can, I, w I want to say thank you for um, Saying what you just said about my work in terms of uh, how the writing does think a little bit about liberation. I think that that is a goal of mine, um, but it hadn't, that didn't become clear to me until more recently. Um, and it's something that I'm going to continue to sort of grapple with moving forward. But I don't think. I knew that I could write sociology like that, that there could be this sort of liberation or liberatory aspect or that we could be thinking about abolition. You know, I think um, I was thinking that to do good sociology, you might have to be more objective and, you know, do all the, those sorts of things. Um, and reading through critical race theory helped. Um, but also, again, for me, just like, doing the work that I wanted to do that felt meaningful to me. Um, being in a position like having a tenure track position was a place of privilege where I felt like I could say things and, you know, I had a job, I have a job. Um, and so there's definitely that aspect, but I, I think my writing has evolved over time. I hope it continues to evolve. Um, but I, the things that I have been able to write now and the projects that I've been able to engage, I didn't know I could do that you know, seven years ago. And so I'm thankful for the field and how it's, I think, been more open to that. I'm thankful for other people who have been doing this work um, that like lends the way and the motivation and for a place like UC Merced that does support it so far. So, I mean, I'm, I, I just want to say thank you for seeing that in my work. And that's like a cool revelation that I've been having with myself and and thinking about sociology and how I want to approach my engagement with it. And I think this is something, this, this very question of what are the boundaries of, you know, legible, you know, so-called traditional scholarship in sociology um, in contrast or in tension with maybe some more um, explicitly normative, at least, work that's explicitly normatively motivated, if not explicitly sort of arguing like, this is what needs to be done, even though that, that can happen too, um, is a tension that, I mean, in my view, this field is, is working, is working out, you know, in real time right now. And there are folks who have said lots of things about that on this podcast in, in the past. Um, and I'm just, I'm fascinated by that question because it, goes, I think, very deeply to, into our history as a discipline, right? Into into kind of how um, how some of the so-called founding fathers of our of our field were thinking about that. 
and their and their own motivations for inquiry into the social world and defining you know this this field as an as a legit as a legitimate you know in scare quotes um, subject of of study right so you know there's a and people have told this story of the trade offs that were made in order to in order to create sociology as a legitimate social science with a with a um, a credible place in uh, in the academy, and some some of that you know probably has to do with um, the differences in tradition from the Chicago folks to the Atlanta folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the way that even folks like Andrew Julia Cooper were arguing against Du Bois about you know his blind spots in mm-hmm. even though his scholarship is you know today uh, widely widely cited you know widely credited maybe not all of it right there's there's maybe more of a focus on some of the earlier work than some of the later work which itself is more liberatory right or it's sort of more uh, more uh focused on um explicitly political uh ends so all that to say i mean um i'm interested in where in how this conversation develops and sort of what where the tension points are uh, you know, there's a lot of gatekeeping around this topic as well. And so perhaps Black Feminist Sociology and this volume that you uh, have co, um, that you're co-editing, you know, can help us think about this problematic a little bit more, but also provide additional space for folks who do want to write uh, in more, um, well, just outside of that traditional kind of genre. We won't mention any particular journal uh, <laughs> particular, but folks know what we're folks know what, what we're sort of gesturing towards in terms of the the um, typical format of a of an academic paper in sociology. Yes, yes, yeah. I hope so. I I really am so excited about this um, book to come out. I feel like this was a book I would have benefited from reading. Um, so, like a book I needed. I think it, it, it was a book I needed to do. Um, like it has served me in so many different ways. It's, you know, like it, I guess has fulfilled a need I didn't know. Um, not that I needed to do. I wasn't saying that in like a, my ego, but <laughs> that I needed for my career. Like it just was um, really beneficial for me to engage with these scholars in this way. Like I think it's grown me in, ways I couldn't have imagined, but I'm so thankful for it. So I hope that people can read it and, and get something out of it and, and take it and move it more and critique it inside it and, you know, engage it in those ways that we were asking people to do. Yeah. I mean, I think I, um, I mean, I think both of us could have used this book in graduate yeah. <laughs> right. Um, for a lot of, for a lot of reasons. Um, I want to, I want to turn if we can to, some of the work you've done on racial reformation and deformation in South Africa. I know nothing about South, South Africa, <laughs> uh, except, you know, sort of where it's located on the map. Uh, and also I understand the climate is fantastic. Um, you know, I used to live in Santa Monica, which has a beautiful climate, like it's usually like 72 degrees and a slight breeze. So it's, it's amazing. Um, so, I'm interested in this article that you wrote uh, recently about racial re and deformation in South Africa. So you write about the fact that scholars who use Omi and Winant's racial formation theory often study how racial projects and racialization work, but they don't often consider 
efforts to change the structure once it's in place. So Almin Wynand's racial formation theory, very influential, very powerful uh, lens through which to see how what we call races are created and constructed and kind of maintained. But you're thinking about how um, the racial system or the racial structure in South Africa has been uh, reconstituted, right? Mm -hmm. So how does the existence of a, of a middle or color and, and what you call, let me rephrase that. <laughs> how does the existence of a middle colored category between black and white in South Africa help us think through racial formation in a different way? Yeah, thanks for asking about this article. Um, I've been working on studying race in South Africa for a long time. I've been doing this work slowly. Um, and so it's it's something that I haven't had that much um, opportunity to talk about, but it really was the reason why I got so tuned into sociology, just thinking about both the American racial structure and its sort of exceptionalism and how much it makes race matter for our everyday lives. And I see South Africa as another context um, that does so, but it has done it differently. And so it's been an interesting place to study race and racial formation. And what I'm arguing in this piece, to think about what a racial category, like deformation might look like. And that's not to say Omin Wanat and these other scholars don't theorize about you know, racial formation is, is the fact that it's a process. It's not like it ends. Um, but a lot of times, sort of the the way it's used is that once a racial group is created, it, it becomes a social fact. And in my article, I'm, I'm arguing that indeed race is a social fact. It is. Like, um, I don't think it will be undone. But there are space potentially for racial categories to be undone. And I think looking at the colored case is an interesting sort of study to, to ask that question. Um, and so, so let me just pause and give a, try to give a quick overview. Um, racial categories, of course, were used prior to apartheid, but during the apartheid reign became so sort of constituted um, that there was the 1950 Population Registration Act and it, it named and identified and defined racial categories. At that time, um, uh, three and then four and then more. Um, and in doing so, it said that this category that you belong to therefore shapes almost every aspect of your life, who you can marry, who you can have sex with, where you can live, what jobs you can have, what citizenship status you can have. And so race, it was like a such a highly racialized society that there was no movement. You you know, like you couldn't push that bound so much because it was so extreme. White supremacy was so extreme. And, you know, Trevor Noah wrote the book Born a Crime because he was born a crime because his parents were, um, he was a black mother and a white father. And, you know, that was not okay. You shouldn't do those mixing. Um, but the, the, and the colored group, at that time was basically identified as anybody who is not black. Um, so not, they, they said native black to Africa and anyone who is not white or European. And so it was this sort of catch all. So folks who had been mixed status um, were included in that or other sort of groups that people couldn't define clearly. So particular um, like some indigenous, populations and things were put into this category. 
Um, and it served a key function. It was like a buffer group between the white minority and the black majority. And they had a lot of privileges relative to the black majority, but a lot of disadvantages relative to the white minority. And so they're this sort of middling group um, that served a function. Now in post-apartheid South Africa, it, the function of that group is like less clear. Um, we have the black majority who have obtained political power at least, uh, maybe not economic so much, but political power. Um, and so that buffering is, is not so much needed. And so the laws have changed to reflect that. And that's what I was looking at, like trying to do a more critical race analysis of the laws. Since the laws were so influential in shaping race and racism and racial experiences, what are the laws saying about race and racial experiences in post-apartheid South Africa? And one of the laws, um, there's a set of laws that deal with racial redress or um, basically affirmative action laws, thinking about employment, trying to address the economic inequities there. And it says that um, there should be empowerment, economic empowerment for Black South Africans. And they identify Black South Africans as um, essentially anyone who is non-white. So those racial groups who were disadvantaged during apartheid. And so in that moment in the law, they're sort of rewriting colored as to be a part of black. They see black as sort of this, um, what some folks would say, like maybe a pan-ethnic category. And it's true that it was tied to this idea of black consciousness by Stephen Biko. So if you had a black political identity, you could be black too. Um, but in the day to day, it's sort of, put colored South Africans in a particular, even more liminal space because by law they are black, but their everyday experiences aren't so much. And so what, like, what does it mean to undo a racial category by law when the laws are so important for shaping race? Um, and so I'm saying in this book, uh, or sorry, in this article, that is a part of my larger book that's, um, nearly drafted, <laughs> that it, it has like only increased their liminality and also offered a space for them to sort of um, deal with the fluidity of race in ways that was unallowed during apartheid. And so um, in other parts of my larger book, I interviewed um, colored South Africans or people who were formerly labeled as color to see more about their racial identities. And in fact, some do identify as black um, for political reasons um, or also the ways they just see race. Um, some, some say, forget the laws, we are colored, we were born and raised this and no one can tell me differently. Um, there are some who are like, race has been so harmful for me and my community, I would like to not identify with any race. And um, then there's like a larger sector of individuals who are reclaiming this indigenous identity um, to be to the Khoi people or the San people or um, people talk about them now as Khoisan and saying that actually like in terms of South Africa, we were the first inhabitants and this is our land, uh, not white South Africans and not these black groups who moved in, that this is our space. And I think that argument, again, is, is tied to, um, like, asking the question of, like, what, what, what do racial categories do 
in a society? What do they serve? And that colors feel like written out or erased by law and therefore are trying to figure out what that placement could look like, how they can achieve to have a place in the new South Africa and to get the support and resources that they need. And so this resurgence in the Khoisan identity is probably the largest sort of um, change in the racial categorization that, that they have witnessed during the contemporary period. Um, so I talked a lot there about the book. I said I was excited to talk about it. I think I got a little off track, but that's what I'm thinking about in this larger book project. I mean, that's so that's so fascinating. The existence of the middle category, I mean, this makes me think about, um, you know, Du Bois's work and the wages of, of whiteness. So, like, there's, like, maybe, I don't know, you'll have to tell me if, if I'm totally off about this. There's a lot of wages for white South Africans. There's middling wages maybe for colored South Africans mm -hmm. under that regime. And then there's debited wages or no wages for yes. black South Africans, mm -hmm. right? That, right? But if you then, if you then put the colored South African population in with the black South African population, does that make, does that devalue colored status? Does that, in other words, does that reduce the mm -hmm. wages of, of colored identity, yeah. right? Relative, yeah. to, relative to white, white identity, which still maintains, I'm, I'm imagining, maintains its, its uh, economic, political, social, you know, advantages relative to the, to to everyone else, right? Yeah. Um, is defined as other than white. Um, yeah. I mean, so that's I, an empirical question, right? That is an empirical yeah. question. And one thing that I see hindering a clear answer to that question is the, um, not everyone does it, but is the tendency to include colors in the black category in quantitative analyses of income. And so you, uh, it's been, a, and sometimes you can't actually disentangle that. Um, but when you do, when you can, um, there's there's a few interesting trends that I have found. Um, so one of the things that people say when they're talking about post-apartheid South Africa is that um, like the inequality has increased within the nation. So um, so and within racial groups, and so there is now more within group inequality, I guess, or um, variation, I suppose, uh, within Black South Africans. So there is a, there is a, um, an increase in the number of Black South Africans who have, who um, have obtained wealth, but it's, it's, um, there's still the large, you know, majority of Black South Africans are not wealthy. They're still disadvantaged by historical structural racism. Um, but there has been more variation where there wasn't before. And so it's just interesting to think about the, the way that inequality has grown across racial groups and within. And so given um, that there is a sector that has increased their wealth, like colored South Africans um, income is, is more stagnant on the whole than black South Africans. And so it's interesting because I think they still have a slight privilege, but it's been, whereas you see growth in the black category, there hasn't been, or it's been even negative for the colored South African category. And so it's, it is an interesting sort of question to think about. Um, and one of the chapters I, I try to theorize a lot about relative deprivation because it's like relative to who and when. Yeah. 
Um, you know, and so like in relative, they were relative deprivation makes a lot of sense thinking through apartheid South Af- Africa, given, you know, the relative deprivation to whites, but relative privilege to blacks. So what does that look like in post-apartheid South Africa? What does that relative deprivation look like? Um, and uh, in terms of using survey data, um, so this is perspectives and terms of colored South Africans, they perceive to be the most deprived. Uh, Mm. So even if they have better wages, they perceive that they are the most disadvantaged economically um, and by treatment from the government. That's another question. So they perceive both like treatment and economic deprivation. So on average, colors perceived to be more deprived than Black South Africans who are, you know, answering those same questions, even if on the whole Black South Africans have a lower income um, rate. Okay, that's really fascinating. And there's a, a lot of potential, it seems to me, parallels between uh, between our situation here in the United States and some folks who are who are um, who feel like their position in the racialized order we have is is becoming devalued relative to um, minority groups who you know to Black Americans, for example, who are uh, perceived to be uh, you know, advantaged by social policy. Anyway, we don't have to talk about the American situation, but uh, it's very, it's very interesting. And uh, I've just been reading about the history of um, the immediate, like post um, emancipation period in the United States, in the Texas actually, and Dallas more particularly, and how elites in Dallas really felt like poor whites were basically like mm-hmm. only like a half step above um both Mexican migrants uh, and which also, you know, it was their country first, but anyway, Mexican migrants and uh, Mexicans and uh, newly emancipated uh, black Americans, which is really a fascinating story. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do think there's interesting parallels and you know, my focus is not on white South Africans. So I don't do as much work there, but they also perceive um, they don't perceive to be the most disadvantaged, but they perceive a disadvantage in post-apartheid South Africa. Um, whereas their income would say differently, you know, it's more questionable for color the color South African group, but um, we still see that. I think scholars are talking about this as sort of like a racial retrenchment sort of attitude. And so, but, you know, it is questionable, like, do, do the perceptions matter? Because, you know, tangibly, come on. Um and then there's some recent work, you know, I uh, think like dying of despair and like there's been interesting sort of like health outcomes <laughs> that have been um, a result of this perception that they are deprived even when they're not. And so, uh, yeah, I, it is really complex. And that's probably why it's taken me so long to write this book, because <laughs> I want to make sure I'm really covering the grounds and like telling a story that matters. Like, these, I, you know, I did interview, I spent time in South Africa and so I'm, I'm sharing these stories that people shared with me and I, it's a privilege to have that, but it's, it's, it is interesting because I'm, I'm focusing on a particular population and getting their perspective. Um, and so, you know, it's constantly like step back, let's think about this more. Let's go back to the data about interview and the legal data and quantitative data. And like, let's, let's put these pieces of the puzzle together. Well, I mean, that sounds like a really, really rich project and we'll have to have you back to talk more about, about the book when it, when it's ready or when you're ready. Yes. (laughs) Well, I think we're, um, 
we're sort of we're running a little low on time. Yeah. Um, because I have to go get my kid eventually. Um, Me too. <laughs> but, but I did. But I did want to um, ask you about your sociology of health and equity lab, and and we were talking before recording about how a lot of the some of the work on COVID nineteen and and the intersectional work on that that you've done does come out of the sociology of health and equity lab that you direct at UC Merced. But what can you tell us about new projects that are that are emerging from your she lab? I have loved um, working with this lab and sort of getting it off the ground. Um, there's a set of graduate students and undergrad and um, early career sociologists who have been a part of our sort of working meetings. And so all of us are coming to the lab with our own sort of things that we want to study. So I could talk about so many different projects, but one in particular that I'm working on with a set of students is thinking about um, the conversation that happens a lot with race and health work, um, how racial discrimination shapes health outcomes for um, groups of color, but also how racial identities of this like psychosocial resource can act as a buffer against mm-hmm. in the face of racial discrimination. And the project that we're working on is looking at various racial groups, so racial contrast within that, because, um, you know, the research is saying that, you know, for instance, for Black Americans, the racial identity or high racial salience is really important, but for some racial groups, it's, it's not as important. And so how does racial identity act as a buffer in the face of racial discrimination for a set, like um, for Black, White, Latinx, and Asian populations, like what are the contrasts and differences there? So I'm hopeful to get that paper off the ground pretty soon and see if we can continue to do more work, just thinking about like race, racial disparities, um, things that can help buffer against racial disparities and also the, you know, continued work on sort of COVID-19, but also um, health crises, like what we can learn from these health crises that are rooted in uh, long-standing inequities and just so many, so so many questions, so many projects. But excited about them for sure. Well, I mean, you know, we, as we said earlier, I mean, one thing that the pandemic has done it has made more visible to more people the ongoing crises uh, in terms of health equity. In, in health justice in our society, right? And so part of your work, I think really helpfully um, highlights that and helps us understand it. And, you know, maybe one outcome, hopefully of, of this pandemic, uh, in addition to the really terrible outcomes uh, is a renewed focus on, you know, creating the conditions at the, at the systemic level that uh, would support the health of, uh, of, of everyone, particularly our most, um, most, um, most oppressed, right. Um, groups, the ones that are exposed, um, yeah. through very, you know, very systemically to, uh, environmental, social, you know, and, um, job related, job related harms. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to ask a little bit more about, um, this project comparing, um, racial groups on like racial salience mm-hmm. and, how do you, how are you measuring racial salience? This is like a nerdy question, but how, yeah. are you, how are you, how are you measuring like racial salience? Is that the concept? It is. <laughs> and I'm laughing because I don't remember how we, <laughs> how it is measured um, in the data. 
But there's a few different questions that attempt to get at racial identity uh, or a capture racial identity, which is different than a racial identification. Mm, uh, yeah. So the racial identification gets at like the categorization. So what do you check when someone asks your race? Now, some scholars will say that's meaningful. That is meaningful in and of itself. But um, within every racial identification, there is a different sort of attachment to how you think about that racial group. So um, the question I think is like, how much does being black, for instance, mean to you? And that can sort of capture the salience of blackness in your life. Um, Yeah. I think there's another question, like how close do you feel to other black people, which gets Mm -hmm. at that a little bit. Um, Whereas people who, you know, report feeling very close, I think blackness is, again, salient to them. It like matters. And so um, what happens to black people matters for them. But people who don't feel as close, it's like more of a distant, like I am black, but like don't, um, well, I am black, but I don't think that everything that happens to a black person is going to matter in terms of my life sort of thing. And so those sort of questions help get at the salience of race in an individual's life, which is more of that social psych um, aspect of it versus just the categorization. And so um, research on Black Americans has found if they do have a, um, if racial identity is salient to them, like it, it can uh, increase, for instance, their self-esteem and things like that. Now, in terms of health, it's a little, um, and racial discrimination is interesting. There's two different sort of ways you could look at at it. If Blackness matters a lot to you, you might um, perceive negative experiences as being um, because you are Black and therefore report even more racial, racially discriminatory experiences, and then that can harm your health. Um, but if you see, so that's sort of one hypothesis or one thing that's been found in the literature, but on the, at the same time, um, some people have talked about it as like a, a personal resource, just, just like self-esteem or sense of control. And so it can buffer against the racial discriminatory experience. So um, it, 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 it's interesting. There's a lot, there is a lot of work on this, but um, I think that in terms of the findings, there are definitely um uh, like a debate in the field in terms of what role. So one of the grad students I'm working with is um, helping me do structural equation uh, modeling so we can do some like path analyses to see what direction these things work in. So I'm excited about that. Very cool. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the questions for white identification. You know, like what would you ask me, for example, <laughs> person who identifies as white like how salient is your is your whiteness because i'm interested in whiteness you know yeah or generally you know rodinger's work and other other people um you know like you know yeah (laughs) identification with like downwardly mobile white people for example yeah or you know anyway yeah no i mean that's a good point someone could say like Someone like you who, you know, you've talked about white privilege yourself, you could say, oh, like, I understand that whiteness matters for me, even though I don't want it to. Like, I understand that at a societal level, whiteness matters. But you could also answer it in a different way, which is, I guess, the problem with quantitative work. Um, but, you know, I, that is an interesting question. And this, um, oh, my gosh, it's been a minute since I've been in this data 
So um, it, it does include white respondents. And so we, um, I, I think if I can remember the findings correctly, that variable is not significant for white Americans, though uh, racial discrimination was. So if they feel like they've been racially discriminated, that was harmful for the health. They did report high levels of that, but not so much the racial salience. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> looking forward to, to learn more about this work as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, Whitney, it's been awesome to talk with you. We could talk a lot longer. Is there anything else you want to share with folks about your work? Uh, and, um, you know, if, if not, that's fine too. But um, also, where can people where can people find out more about your work and and what you're up to? Yeah, this was such a wonderful conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it, and it's like taking me back to days um, in Garland Hall <laughs> um, on Vanderbilt's campus. So it's been great to reconnect. Well, awesome, Dr. Whitney Pertle. Thanks so much for joining us on the NX, and we'll have to have you back. Uh, when you're ready to talk more about your book length project, which I'm super excited about. And I know many of our uh, listeners will also be uh, anxiously awaiting as well. So thanks again. Thank you. I can't wait. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Today's episode featured Whitney Pirtle from the University of California, Merced, and was hosted by Daniel Morrison from Abilene Christian University. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Twitter, at Soshannix, on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. This episode was produced by Joseph Cohen. Music is by Lena Orsa. Thanks for listening.